Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Before I start, thank you so much for tuning in, for listening, for sharing, for reaching out to me, and for subscribing. It means a lot. You guys are so great, and I'm so humbled and so grateful for all the support. Big things are going to be happening on the show, and I'm really, really excited about the future. And I'm excited about today because I get to interview one of the greatest sports broadcasters in history, Chris Myers. This is a guy who, if you don't know him, you must be living in some kind of igloo in Antarctica. You'd know him there too because he's probably covered some sporting event there for the Winter Olympics. But this guy has done everything from multiple Super Bowls, World Series, NBA Finals, NCAA basketball, Final Fours, the Masters, Daytona 500, the Olympics, so many different things. He's interviewed everybody from Muhammad Ali to O.J. Simpson to Pete Rose to the 2004 World Series Red Sox winners after 86 years to Bill Murray and Adam Sandler. It's nonstop and it's endless. And he's a guy who started in a small town in Florida and went to a community college and for some reason with hard work and the ability to want to show up on time or early and to give everything he had in a smart way through all different distractions, he was able to persevere. And more importantly, during probably... His greatest successes in the business, suffering the loss of his son, and for some 
unknown, unexplainable reason, being able to battle through that and be able to come out on the other side a better man and an incredibly much more respected and powerful broadcaster. And I think to myself of all the trials and tribulations that I've been through and how many times I felt to myself and wondered if I was ever going to make it through and break through after all the things that had happened to me in my life. And I realized that when you meet people like Chris Myers, you understand that there's a higher power out there and there's people out there who have the ability to battle through the greatest adversity, the most difficult personal tragedies and challenges. And instead of going inward and taking to drugs and alcohol or pills or depression through a support group of the relationships they have in the business, they're able to forge on and create even better relationships, create stronger appearances in their profession, and take their career to the highest levels. And if you ever think of that like I do, I think of Chris Myers, and I think to myself, if you can figure out a way through your profession where you've suffered some of the greatest downs and greatest tragedies, if you can just figure that out and fight through it and don't lose your way and don't let any outside forces take you down, don't let any influences like drugs and alcohol take you down in your lowest moments and just remember the person you lost and what they would want for you and what successes they would want you to have in your career and your personal life. I think for sure that you will have the opportunity to have the kind of career that Chris Myers has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Chris Myers. This is a day that's really exciting for me. And when all's said and done and he hangs up his microphone, I can guarantee you he will be in the Broadcasting Hall of Fame. No question in my mind. And when we're done with the introduction, one of the people here will shake him violently until he wakes up. And then uh, we will move on with the podcast. So here we go. Chris Myers is an American sportscaster with more than 30 years yes. of broadcasting. <laughs> He has covered premier events, including the Super Bowl, World Series, NBA Finals, NCAA Final Four, the Masters and the U.S. Open, the Olympics and the Daytona 500, not necessarily in that order. As a native of Miami, Florida, Myers attended Florida International University and Miami-Dade Community College 
where he majored in radio and television. Yes, everybody out there listening, you can go to a community college and you can still make it to the next level. He started his own talk radio show at the age of 16 in Miami, interviewing sports legends such as Muhammad Ali and Don Shula. What a way to start. He then served as a sportscaster in Miami from 78 to 82. From there, he went on to work nationally for ESPN. And during his 11 years at that network, he hosted Up Close and reported and anchored for SportsCenter. He was awarded an Emmy Award in the Sports Features category in 1990 as an anchorman and reporter. He then joined the Fox family in 1998 and as an anchor for Fox Sports News on FSN. He served as a sideline reporter during Fox's coverage of the NFL playoffs since 2005 and contributed to coverage of numerous Super Bowls on Fox. As a field reporter for Major League Baseball, one of the favorite things he does, Myers had the honor of interviewing the Red Sox when they finally won the 2004 World Series in St. Louis, where I was attending the game. One of five World Series he's covered. Amazing. In 2010, Myers was tapped to host Showtime's Inside NASCAR Series alongside analysts Brad Doherty, Michael Waltrip, and Randy Pemberton. He also published two books, NASCAR Nation and NASCAR in America. One of the absolute busiest broadcasters in sports, Myers hosted his own three-hour program, CMI. Chris Myers' interview on Fox Sports Radio, heard on more than 250 affiliates and on Sirius XM Radio. The show featured the last interview with legendary coach John Wooden and stars from the sports and entertainment world such as Bill Murray and Adam Sandler. Most people remember Chris for famous interviews he's done with O.J. Simpson, which we'll talk about as well. Myers currently co-hosts Myers and Wes on the Beast 980 AM in Los Angeles, and we're going to love this guy a lot. It's an honor. Please welcome my guest today, a man who is now waking up, Chris Myers. All right, well, thanks for uh, for having me. There's a there's a lot in there and <laughs> a lot to uh, a lot to cover. It's been a lot of fun. I was just thinking, you began in the in the 70s in high school, doing talk radio, and then uh, you know I didn't know at the time there would be 24 hour sports networks and things like that. That I'd be later working for one or two. As it as it turns out, there wasn't a Fox Sports that existed at the time. It's been a uh, it's been a, an interesting uh, journey, and it's continuing. That's the fun part. In your profession, somebody can step in who's never had any experience whatsoever and become a star, whether, let's say, a John Gruden who never had any broadcasting experience goes in or a Chauncey Billups goes in or a Paul Pierce who was just on the NBA show during the finals. Does that sting other broadcasters who put in years and years and then they see this guy being plucked out, paid more than them? Yeah. And they don't have any time in the game. Yeah, you know, I, I, it doesn't bother me. I, I, because I think that part of their, their stardom, part of what gave them that opportunity, 
is they were good in another field. They accomplished. John Gruden won a Super Bowl. Uh, you know, uh, Alex Rodriguez, you know, for all the, the controversy, uh, Hall of Fame skills as a player, or a Frank Tom who, who's going to get the chance to be a broadcaster. So in that role, I'm comfortable. Those guys, they're analysts. All right, there's a big difference to me, and I don't know if it matters to the viewer as much when you watch a game. There's the, the guy who handles the broadcast part of the show. He's the play-by-play announcer. He's the host, whatever. And then there's the the analyst who's or analyst if there's more than one. And, and they have a role because they played the game to give you the insight. What would bother me, and I don't know that anybody's done this well, maybe, maybe some guys historically have transitioned over once they've worked in broadcasting, and that's okay because they put the time in. But I don't think anybody, any of those ex-athletes or coaches, that you could hand them the job of a play-by-play guy or a host and that they could handle it unless they studied broadcasting and worked at it. And by that, I mean you got to be able to take direction in your ear. you got to handle countdowns, clocks, getting to commercial breaks, uh, making sure you're asking the right questions in the time, covering the news story, keeping it light, gener- you know, the traffic cop, the, you know, that, that kind of role, which is a very important and very underrated. And, and the really good play-by-play hosts uh, who do that on I'm speaking from a sports show standpoint and maybe now on some of the the news talk shows uh, they, they they aren't as in the forefront they aren't as big a star but they make it they make it work a lot of the audience doesn't know this but a lot of times you're listening to the radio and the guy is about to sign off and a lot of times you'll hear an announcer getting cut off and you'll think, God, that announcer, he really screwed that up. He doesn't even know where he is in the thing. But the fact is that you think that he pressed the button. <laughs> but in the national shows, there's these lock-off times yep. when they have to go to commercial. And you have to count down and get there and finish your last word before they go or else you're just going to be cut off. And that's what happens, and that's why you notice that sometimes. Absolutely. And you can tell, and so can the audience, Barry, when they're watching, whether it's local news or a national news show, when there's the the real breaking news. I'm not talking about the fake breaking news that they throw up on the screen. They've abused that, which is really unfortunate. But when there's a car chase or when there's, a, or when there's some kind of weather disaster type thing, that's when there's no teleprompter. And the the news anchor or host is having to handle ad lib, whatever, off the pictures, off their knowledge of the situation, off the information they're getting. And and that's the real those are the those are the professionals. Those are the that's the skill set that I think the the best should have and do have and and when the when those situations unfold as opposed to those who are stumbling around and looking and wondering who somebody tell me something what am I going to do next well I have nothing to say but I'm going to talk anyway Um, uh, those are just part of the things as being kind of a TV nerd as as I am uh, over the years watching for those kinds of things Uh, just like one of the little things that bother me when when they say on television take a listen you know you don't you don't take a listen right you 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 listen right why are you telling me I'm watching I'm listening. I, I'm right. If you want to say, listen more carefully or something, there's a few of those little things uh, that, that just bug me from, from my basic uh, training and uh, not, to, not to nitpick or, or be uh, high and mighty about it. But, but to, to go back to your original point about, you know, hey, can guys get thrown in? Yeah, some people are natural. They can pull it off as ex-athletes. Uh, but when you're in an analyst role, that's a little different than being in that host role or that play-by-play role. And that to me, uh, and some people have transitioned over, but that takes a lot of work and effort and I don't think uh, anybody can throw that off by being thrown into it just because they were a great athlete or a great coach 
tell our audience the first time you were thrust into a situation where you had to go off book, something happened, and you're out there alone in the ocean with the great white sharks, and you have to pull something off. What happened? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know about the first time, but I will say that the years in radio of doing talk radio and and local live TV where you're interviewing people and, and the, the exact guest doesn't show up on time or the, the wrong video rolls and you have to work your way through it, that helped me, and I think it helps most people when they get to the network level. When I was at the 1989, my first year working at ESPN as a reporter at the Earthquake World Series uh, with the Giants and the A's. It's five or ten minutes before the earthquake. Where are you? What was the segment you did before that? And what segment are you preparing for? And what happens? Yeah, I'm with uh, Bob Lee, Chris Berman, familiar names to those who uh, at ESPN. I'm the young, the new reporter there, uh, Candlestick Park, the old Candlestick Park for the Giants playing the A's in the World Series. We had done my my role as the reporter. I did a something from the field with Tony La Russa, one of the players, about getting ready for the World Series game, and we're up in the auxiliary press box, up in the in the stands there, so we're outside, not not inside. Are you outside on a part of the field? Or are you outside somewhere in the stands. No, we're in the stands and we're up where the press box level would be, but there's just not enough room. Back then, you know, cable, we weren't as big. So we, <laughs> they just set us out there. Uh, and we were, you know, you, you're more worried about watching the game. And at least my mind is working as the reporter, you know, Chris will anchor the, Berman will anchor the coverage with Bob Lee. And I'm, I'm going to do the post-game interview for ESPN or the, 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 the hero of the game, uh, whoever wins that. And then, you know, the follow-up, you go talk to the, the, the losing manager of that particular game. I don't even remember which game of the World Series it was at that time, but, and, and ABC was doing the coverage with, with Al Michaels, the actual game broadcast, so we were there just to cover before and after. And before the game, all of a sudden, you hear what sounded like, and, and I had just moved to California, so I'd been through a minor earthquake, so I was somewhat aware, but but uh, Bob, uh, Lee, and Chris Berman had not been, to my knowledge at that time, and it threw anything like that, so it sounded like almost like a plane had hit the stadium. So it was kind of an awkward sound, and then there was a rumble, and I and the field, the the which was said it was a, it was a sparkling sunny day, and the grass field lit up. It was it was really a spectacular scene before that, but it almost looked like it, it like a wave of an ocean. I mean, the way it rippled, it 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 didn't. It wasn't that extreme, but between the feel of the shaking and the the look of the field, and then people are scrambling. You know, Mark McGuire and uh, guys that were on the on the field. Some of them had their families nearby because it was early enough before the game uh and, and with the national anthem and so right away they were like what happened here and i had just i seemed like an earthquake i'd been through it. we didn't know how bad it was you know how serious but but i knew that was a major jolt in in terms of other parts of of uh, the bay area the bay bridge i mean tragedy uh and and by the marina so right away i said we we got to try to if, if we're on the air if our south we got to get on the air and, and report this and and I can talk to somebody. I had met with somebody from the stadium before about security and teams, but I thought they might be able to help us. So uh, I rushed down to try to get to, and, and Chris and Bob were trying to get to a point where they could set up, since there was no set, to go on the air to tell people about it. But we had to make sure, number one, that we still had the ability to be on the air because power was knocked out in, in some cases. And because of our generator and the truck, we were able to stay on the air. And <clears throat> so I just got a camera that was connected 
rejected, and I ran and tried to talk to whoever I could, some players, some managers. A lot of that's a blur. I think I remember Terry Steinbach, the catcher for the A's. I uh, couldn't find anybody immediately with, with the stadium, but to find out about what, you know, how serious this was. So right away, the bigger issue is you're shifting from covering a game to this is a news story. We, you know, are people hurt? Are people trapped? Is this, is there an, is there an aftershock? Uh, since we, we had the ability to go on the air, um, we, we did right away and at least gave the information that we had at the time. But Chris Berman and Bob Lee did not grab the camera and go. You had the instincts to grab the camera and go. They were senior to you. And even though it was an earthquake, were you thinking to yourself, if I get out there before them, I know I'm going to be on all day. <laughs> no, I, well, I think as the new guy and the, and the not as senior guy, I was thinking, well, I'm the reporter. I, I got to get out there and gather what I can. In defense of them, they were trying to get to a position where they could anchor the coverage. In other words, they, they would have to go on and, and set the scene. And I think Bob Lee, again, I was scrambling, so I didn't get to hear a lot of that, uh, although I later saw footage. Uh, I think that they were able to do that, even though they were standing maybe in a parking lot outside the truck until I was able to, to gather information. And then the follow-up after days, we stayed there because then there was the story of, okay, is how, how important is this game in terms of people lives were lost property destroyed do the games go on we're talking about a world series do you cancel it so the commissioner was there faye vincent who was very cooperative again as a reporter helpful to me even though we weren't the broadcast network to give me the information of of the schedule uh that relates to another of the stories when i was at the 96 olympics in atlanta and the, and the bomb went off and and that story that's i was on for 12 hours overnight and what was interesting it was an incredibly hot day like overheat so i was taping up close up on the chamber of commerce building second floor and charles barkley was going to be on a couple of the other guys who were in the nba uh, in the uh, olympic basketball uh, from the nba and so I, I i could wear shorts you know like just basic tennis shorts and sneakers and then the coat and tie because people wouldn't see the lower half and we were outside and it was so hot and i figured well I'll, I'll change later but for these interviews we can do this so Anyway, we're up there taping. It's late at night. The bomb goes off and we hear something. And you, I was recording something for SportsCenter at the time. And I, you can even hear on tape the boom. And I'm like, that sounds like something. Something's not right. Fireworks. Are they, are they putting fireworks off. And then we saw sirens and that, or heard sirens and saw uh, rescue people scrambling. And so, again, that reporter uh, kicked in. I said, I, 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 I got to get out. We got, you know, we had our skeleton crew. I said, we got to find out what's going on. Can a camera meet me on the, on the third floor? Um, so I ran down and actually poli they, the police were evacuating people. Uh, but I said, you know, we, we have a right to be here. I probably shouldn't have said that, but I, this is where I wanted to make sure because we were the only ones inside that area at the bomb, <clears throat> at the bomb site, the only media, because it was the late sports center. Everybody else had gone home and NBC, which was doing the Olympics was, was done for the day. And then I stayed with that cameraman. And that's when you talk about hours I was on from, I don't know, whatever it was, midnight till six or seven the next morning, roaming around, trying to find out. And at that point, we didn't know if there were other bombs, if it was terrorism. Uh, but I, I, I saw medical people. I saw National Guard, the police. They were very cooperative, although worried about our safety. But at least relaying at the time, and I would go on live like every few. And, and what was interesting, uh, the local affiliates uh, for ESPN ABC picked up our coverage because we were the only ones carrying that. I think they won some kind of award for that 
for that coverage. Um, but anyway, we're on till next morning, at least keeping people up to date with, okay, so far there's only one bomb. So far this is the injury. They don't have a suspect, but the National Guard is here. The streets are closed off. It was one of those moments where, again, you think you're there talking sports and something bigger, more important happens. And that's where all that background training comes in of, you know, the time in radio, the time interviewing people, uh, the time reacting to things, handling yourself in a, in a live situation. Hey, everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. If you were to analyze yourself, what's your biggest strength as a broadcaster and what's your biggest weakness? Well, I mean, you do self-scouting a lot when you're working through your career. And sometimes it's not what you want to do, your path. It's what the the people you work for, what they want you to do. Uh, I don't know. I eh, Strength. I, I mean, I like the fact that, uh, that I am versatile. Okay. So that, that, and you mentioned some of that. I mean, I, I think that gives me an advantage in these situations, or at least gives me an opportunity to handle situations so that I could do a hard news story, but, you know, or I could do a touching piece on a, you know, the Emmy piece that we won was on a, on a pitcher who was adopting a child in, in Guatemala, his family, their first child, and he makes an all-star game. He has to choose between going to the all-star game or going with his wife to meet the child for the adoption paper. It was a fascinating story that we fell into. But so you got to be able to do something like that. And then you got to be able to, you know, to, uh, call a game or interview to, you know, Johnny Damon after the, the Red Sox win the World Series, uh, you know, breaking a curse. So I would say the versatility and being, uh, being able to handle all those situations, uh, at least professionally, uh, appropriately, uh, is probably one thing. I don't know. I don't know what, in terms of the weakness, I, 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 we all have them. Uh, you know, maybe not narrowing into one field and, and, and being specific and, and dominating that field. But I think I might get not bored with that. But I, I don't know that I would be as effective uh, if, I, if I did that. When it comes to sports, there's technically, in terms of a full-service situation, you have ESPN and you have Fox. When you went to Fox, part of you probably thought to yourself, well, I'm not at ESPN anymore, and I'm going to Fox at a place that isn't really as big and not as powerful and you probably wondered to yourself are they going to become what they can become or what i believe espn could become 
you have a guy like, let's say, Stephen A. Smith, who is at ESPN. They determine, I think, similarly to you, that, you know what? We like him. He's a knowledgeable guy. He's great at what he does, but we're not going to retain him. We're going to let him loose. He goes to Fox. He doesn't do well at Fox. ESPN says, hey, we're taking you back. (laughs) And then he becomes a thousand times bigger than he was when he was first at ESPN or at Fox. So my question to you is, do you think it's a question of timing with certain talents or do you think it's a question of the fact that a certain network might be better for a certain person? Well, a lot of it is timing. Chris Berman, uh, what he did with his career, and, and there are critics, people don't like him, they like him, and not. Look, he's a good guy. I worked with him. He, he loves what he does, passionate. I always thought he had a harmless ego. Uh, he, uh, he's, he's been good to people over the years, uh, but he, the timing of his with his nicknames and his personality and engaging himself so much into, the, into what he cares about uh, worked out perfectly with the growth of ESPN and a 24-hour cable channel before they had rights to baseball, football, or college athletics. So the timing worked perfect for him. People, I remember people say, I want to be the next Chris Berman trying that in local sports. Well, you can't be. You're, first of all, you're not him, and, and you, you miss that window of time. It doesn't mean you can't be the next whoever, but you have to find that that angle. And I think there's two parts to that. Timing is important. Yes, you have to. First of all, if you don't have the ability, you're not going to make it. Okay, they can only prop you up for so long. It's like we see that in Hollywood. They're, they're trying to tell us who the next big star is going to be and shove it down. Well, you know what? If, they're, if they're, we're not going to their movies, if they're not in it, then that ain't going to happen. Okay, so. The other part of that is I, I do think networks say, and some of it is economics or development, and, and some of it's the talent. Maybe they, they change their attitude or their approach the next time around, whether it be with a different network or where they want to go with things, as opposed to being, I'm just a guy who covers this sport. Well, now I'm an opinionated columnist kind of guy, and I'm going to comment on everything because I, I have strong, even though I don't know a lot about <laughs> some of the things I'm commenting on, I'll be outrageous so people pay attention. And I do think some of the, the networks, they try to make their own stars. And, and I'm a little, it, it's one thing to pick out a guy and say, hey, we've been watching him. He's doing well and he's developing and he deserves a chance. It's another thing to say, we're going to take this person and we're going to make sure he's the big star, you know, to, well, if you're, you can promote that and you can say that, but if the ratings aren't there and the buzz, which is another overused word a lot, and that fades in a hurry, by the way. If the buzz isn't there, then eventually that's not going to work. And and I I think there's a lot of different ways for personalities to go. There's a trend now of arguing, debate TV, whatever you want to call it, and, and a lack of uh, interest in highlight shows. And, and I get that because the old sports center, now you can, on your device, we can get highlights. We can get scores and information. We used to be, when I did sports center, we would deliver the information. You couldn't get it anywhere else as fast as we could give it to you. Now, you're already getting that as a sports fan, so you want a little bit more. You want some opinion. Hopefully, it's 
it's grounded opinion with some value. And you want maybe a little personality so that you can add something to the information and the, and the stats that you have. But there'll always be a need, I think, for some kind of highlight information show, even if it's less. What I don't know about is the debate. To, you, you can go on Twitter or Facebook and, and have all kinds of chats and, and debates and arguing. Are you going to watch two people? Radio on TV is something I'm still trying to figure out myself. I think I think maybe because we have so many TV stations now, you can have it on in the background like you would a radio station. And I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying it's very different uh, than the TV, I think, which is supposed to be visually interesting <clears throat> than, than, we, than we kind of grew up on and are taking forward on, on devices. But I, I, I think the answer to your question, I don't, I don't think there's one simple answer. Uh, I would just, again, recap with timing is important, having some ability, and having a network that, uh, that recognizes your talent and allows you to go on the path that you think is good for you, which would also be good for them. Sometimes I think networks push people in a path that they think is better, and it's not the right path for that person, which is why you may have a guy change or come back around. There's now a woman on every single show. Even the NBA Finals, Doris Burke is there, and she's one of the only examples of somebody who I'm presuming is over 40 who's doing anything relevant, and men can be over 40 in sports broadcasting. Terry Bradshaw can be propped up <laughs> on the chair, and he'll still be there, but you can't imagine that these networks... For some reason, they just don't want to have experts in the field who are women who are older. Why do you think that is? Well, I, but maybe because it took a while for the, the ceiling to be, you know, kicked in. But I, but I do think that's changing. I think you see it in places: the tennis channel, the golf channel, uh, and and uh, I'm, I'm think I'm trying to think out loud here as far as older women in positions who have been there. I I I kind of grew up in the business with Leslie Visser, who. Uh, I respected tremendously. She was a terrific sports writer before getting on the sideline beat and then doing features and reports. So I, I didn't see the, a big gap between, okay, I didn't think that women were being held back. Maybe she cleared the path. Somebody who I always thought was extremely talented and never seems to get her due. Now it could be argued that, well, Barry, she does get her due. She's been on big games and done big things. I always thought Pam Oliver was fantastic. I thought that she had great presence. She was knowledgeable, had a great relationship when she did the interviews on the sidelines. And it just never seems like she was given the opportunity to get to the next level. Is it my imagination? That no, I, first of all, I, I worked with Pam, covered a couple of Super Bowls. You're absolutely on target with, in terms of her talent level, the way she related uh, to players in interviews, uh, coverage. For me, she was terrific to, to work with. Sometimes people don't want to leave a comfort zone or an area to do more things. Now, I don't, I know, I don't know that for a fact in certain areas, but I know for Pam, she enjoyed her role in, in doing the, the NFL. And there was some talk about maybe doing some other things. And she did have some opportunities, but I don't, to my knowledge, and you'd have to ask her, uh, she wasn't denied an opportunity to do more things. Uh, but I, I think you could make that case, Barry, for 
for for other women, but also other young men who who are good and, and just haven't gotten an opportunity, or just announcers in general. There's only so many jobs, and and management's going to pick and choose. Sometimes it's who their agent is. It's how much of you know what kind of salary it is. Uh, sometimes they they don't see in a person. Yes, the physical look, the appearance. Uh, that's all very important. But when you have a seasoned professional, I guess if your point is, okay, are women being held back because of their age? That's something you'd have to ask people in uh, in sports management about. But I can say that I don't think Pam was, at least from my experience, held back at all. And she liked her role, and she's still doing it. Uh, you know, not necessarily on the, the A crew. Uh, she's doing it with another crew at Fox, but she's still getting to, to do the job that she likes doing, which is covering football games and doing interviews. 99.99999% of the women who are in front of the camera in sports, if you polled 100 guys, they would say, boy, that girl's really beautiful. And if you were to take all the men in broadcasting on camera and poll 100 women, I'd say 99.999 would say, None of these guys are Brad Pitt. Why is there such a role reversal when it comes to looks and sports on television? Well, I don't know if that's just sports. I, I think you would think that way, in, or at least your poll might, might come out that way in, in news or in, in the entertainment industry. The visual part of the business is, is you know, in the eye of the beholder. We usually like somebody who's handsome or attractive and successful. And But I, I think, look, in society, this is where it's changed a, a little bit. I, you know, some people are still offended having cheerleaders at professional uh, sporting events. You know, the, the women, they think that that's, that that's, you know, all right, well, why don't we have male cheerleaders? Well, you do in college or whatever you want to call them. So, but I, I do think it's, I think it's changing. I, you know, I, but I think it's more, I don't think it's, 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 and then sports has broken some barriers in, in that area. Just like if you go back to Jackie Robinson or the color barrier. I mean, look what uh, uh, putting a female announcer in the baseball broadcast booth on a national telecast um, uh, for for the four-letter network where I used to work. I mean, whether people like it or not, it, it, it took a lot of uh, guts to do that, to find the right person that would mesh into the broadcast. And, and I just think it's important to make it more about the broadcast and the event, you can have, like I said, your personality and your touch on it, but don't make it about all about me. The game is the thing, at least in sports, you know, and yes, you want to do sideshows and, and debates and, 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 and take over your own, you know, make it all about you and your personality. That's great. That's why we have talk shows and, and uh, call in shows and that type of thing. Back when I started watching sports and you started watching sports, you could see Howard Cosell doing Monday Night Football and he could say about some African-American guy running, look at that little monkey go. Today, Imus could say the words nappy-haired hoe and he gets thrown off the air for God knows three years. What I'm saying is how much harder is it for you now? Because you're one of the rare guys who I think there's only been one time in your entire career where somebody has called you on anything that you said that they were offended. Yeah, it was an obscure thing. But but your point being, and look, uh, uh, Bill Maher uh, recently on his show, 
using a word uh, that you wouldn't use. And yes, he's a comedian. And I think, you know, comedians may think they have different boundaries, but we live in a, in a different world now. And if, if you say something that's offensive or derogatory or insulting, uh, whether it be sex, race, religion, I, 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 people, there's, there's just a lot more people out there that can express their voice that says, hey, that's not cool. And if you want, or that's, you know, I'm offended by that. And, and if they want to go after sponsors or your station, I, then I think there's pressure uh, for, for networks to, to react to it. But the overriding part is, look, some people can be offended at everything. That's, that's a separate issue. I do think, and this is important, that I do think you have to be a little bit more aware of, of how you phrase things and what you're saying, especially when you're on a, in any conversation or broadcast, but especially on a national scale, when you have the responsibility and you're representing a network and, uh, and, and uh, you know, a group that's broadcasting an, an event. You have to be very, very careful. But yet, uh, again, people like to hear personality and, and opinion, uh, but there are boundaries for that, I think. And I think we, we should be made aware of those. We all look, we all slip, we all stumble. Uh, I, I think what I would be careful of is just not to judge, it's, you know, judge people by their actions, um, not by sometimes if they stumble on a word or say certain things that are inappropriate. Um, I, I, I think that's the better way to do it. Let's not be so quick. Let's look at the background and the history of somebody. Did they treat people a certain way? Uh, women, whatever. Uh, if that's if that's the issue, okay. Uh, but if they said something inappropriate, then do what you think, whether it's a suspension or a fine or whatever you want to do. And I think we're seeing that too in uh, professional sports leagues, which is absolutely important uh, for athletes to be aware that they are public figures. And that's what's so miraculous about your career and a lot of people you respect. You rarely make that mistake. I'm sure when you mentioned that thing that you mentioned, I believe that even you, after you said it, I don't even think you thought twice that you said anything that was offensive. That would be offensive, yeah, because I was trying to compliment people who were doing a good thing. Sometimes you think you said, here's a quick example of not, not controversy. I'm interviewing Kurt Warner before a playoff game. Uh, Arizona Cardinals. He prefers the the the, the dome in, in Phoenix, Arizona, Glendale. He likes it closed for the noise and the, and the throwing of the football. And uh, uh, the, I think the league, they talked about having it open. And uh, I'm told, you know, we're live before the broadcast. And this was early, a little bit earlier on for me. But I had one question to talk to him about the game. And then I was supposed to the second question, ask about, hey, you, know, you like the roof closed, by the way, because the ball, you know, sails clearly uh, or whatever. So we we got rushed for time. The producer, I asked him the first question and I'm ready to ask the second because we got a wrap. We got a wrap. And I, I think I said something like, well, all right, so the roof is open today, Kurt, but thanks very much. And I meant to say just so the roof is closed, you know, because I had to condense everything. And normally that's something you just do and, you, and it's fine. And the roof, and I look up and I just said, did I just say the, the roof is open? It's closed, you know, and I, but I was thinking more about the question and, and quickly uh, they had to say, oh, you, of course he meant the, the roof is closed today. The you know, one team would like it open, but you know, Kurt, whatever we moved along but I didn't even know I didn't even realize I said it until after it was already out there and in my head it was like a simple thing like that so so that's an example in the moment but other things you have to be very aware and that's where maybe staying in your lane I don't know what Kathy Griffin was thinking in any way but if you're a comedian you know do jokes I, I you know if you're a political commentator do political commentary if you're going to be both then okay you're being both but you're risking a lot and that's the one area that I've learned about myself 
myself, even though I'm a big fan of comedy and I, and I like jokes and a sense of humor. I'm a sportscaster. When people put on, somebody gave me good advice. They said, if, if I go to an Italian restaurant, I expect Italian food. I, I don't expect you to have Italian food and Mexican food and Japanese food. That's a little bit different. If I want that, I'll go do that. So when I'm calling a game, uh, then I, I guess you know, it doesn't mean you can't have personality and, and highlight certain things in people's personality and go a little bit outside the box. But you, that's what people are there for in that sense. If, if they're there for the football game or if they're there for an interview, that's a little bit different. I've interviewed a lot of fascinating people over the years. So in, in that sense, you can ask them a lot uh, about different things and they may want to talk about politics or something. Some may not want to want to go there. I remember a broadcast that I saw when I was, I think, in college. It might have been a little bit later. It was an NBA game, and calling the game is Rick Barry and Bill Russell. And Rick Barry makes a joke to Bill Russell, why are you giving me that watermelon grin? Wow. Bill Russell, he said nothing the rest of the telecast. So Rick Barry would be like, so Bill, what do you think about that? And that was his rebellion, and he did the whole thing that way. Have you ever been in a situation where you are in the middle of somebody making a mistake and you can see them making a horrible mistake and you're trying to save them? When's the last time you've been through something like that? Well, I, we did something with Pete Rose, who I work with, who's, and again, I think this is not an excuse, but I think there is some, some generational where, where phrases and terms have changed over time. Pete Rose is a guy in his 70s, so he refers to certain people uh, a certain way or about women or whatever. And we, I think we were doing a, and I won't get into the specifics because we were doing a Facebook live chat with, with around the All-Star game last year or in San Diego. And, and he said something uh, about a player and, and, and some issue with a woman. And, and it, it might have been funny, you know, to, to him at a bar, but not when we're on. And so I had to quickly kind of, you know, you know I tried as well. Of course, you, you don't mean that. And, and we have to be aware of people's feelings. It was just one of those where I, that was, I, I, to me, as the host of the thing, I couldn't let dead silence. That wouldn't that'd be hanging a guy out. But I certainly wanted to make him aware that that's not the way we want this, uh, this conversation to go. Hey, everybody. I am really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water and if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out 
with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. I want to go way, way back. Tell me about where you grew up, what the socioeconomic dynamic was of where you were, what your family was like, poor, rich, and what your first inspiration was to get into this business. No, I grew up, uh, not, a lot of, not a lot of money. I, I didn't realize, I mean, we weren't, you know, dirt poor, but we were, we were lower. Uh, I mean, we didn't get the things we wanted, but I, 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 I was never starving at night. Although I remember my father sometimes saying, or my mother saying, well, if we don't, you know, we're late on this electric bill, they could turn the lights off if, if we don't pay this bill. That rattled me as a kid. It came from a family of five. Uh, my mom was a little bit ahead of her time in terms that she worked and was active. Uh, and and, and he, as we were growing up, my, my father would work two jobs. He was with the post office uh, in, in South Florida. They came from Cleveland, Ohio, and that's where I was born in, in Miami. So I'm the, I have an older and a younger brother and then two older sisters. Uh, and, and so growing up, up. I, you know, family was big. Holidays were big. I, that, that's, that was one of the, the fun things, I, I think, when I look back on, on the childhood. And I, had, I lived in a, in a really, when I look back, I, I, I'm grateful for this because it was at a time in Miami, kind of a, a mixed neighborhood. I mean, with, with uh, black, Jewish, uh, Irish guy who was a policeman on the corner. It was almost like a, when I grew up, later a sitcom in terms of how you would blend people together, a Hispanic, uh, Cuban influence. Uh, of course, in South Florida, which which since grew. Um, and at the time, I just thought, you know, that that was the, how everybody kind of grew up. You know, our, our family, we blended in. We had different kinds of uh, uh, holidays with different people, but we would all gather and get along, I, uh, which was we learned about other cultures, which was kind of kind of fun without even through just osmosis or that type of thing. And I, I think a key point for me, not having a lot of money was, uh, in going to public school in, in South Florida, as my brothers and sisters did ahead of me, I, I thought it was important to go to a private school. And I give my dad credit because he said, if you want to, he was already going to have to work a second job. He would, cause he had to pay extra to put me into this private school, which was uh, Chaminade in uh, Hollywood, Florida. And now it's Chaminade Madonna. It's, it, it, at the time, it was an all-boys private school, and, and now it's, it's co-ed. And, and that, to me, those, those were key years, those four years in high school with my radio passion and interest in terms of, um, I don't know, just learning about discipline, education. Th that was like college to me. It put me ahead in terms of how to, how to get things done, uh, how to handle social situations and, and deal with people uh, and kind of take me out of my neighborhood and my own family and expose me a little bit uh, to the rest of the world, so to speak, because there were some people who had a lot of money in that class and then there were people who were, you know, somebody else was paying for their education, but it also taught me uh, the value of hard work and the, the cost of education and the importance. Who were the people that you watched that were your biggest inspirations? They mostly weren't sports people, no disrespect. They were TV entertainers. I was a fan of talk shows, interview shows. I you know, would ask my parents if I could stay up late to watch Johnny Carson, not only for the monologue, but I, I thought he was a terrific interviewer. Um, you know, Mike Douglas during the day, Merv Griffin, whatever. I'd, you know, any, any show where people were talking to, to people. And in terms of sports, I always enjoyed sports. I wasn't a very, very good athlete myself, but it was a way to kind of take the interview into the mind of uh, what people were doing in sports. I guess it was an easier, easier path. And, and it's funny because my father was a 
World War II veteran, worked two jobs, grew up in the Depression. So he was, he was, you better stay up on the news, current events, never mind with sports. You know, that's not that important. Uh, and then, of course, later, you know, when I made a career out of this, uh, I would call him and say, hey, you know, this worked out. You know, I would say, what, what do you think of the election? He goes, never mind that. How about those Dodgers? You know, his view changed a little bit. So sports became a more important thing in, uh, in my life. But I think what drove me was talking to, to people. And one of the early people from a network standpoint uh, was Brent Musburger in the NFL Today with Irv Cross, Phyllis George, if you go way back, because I liked football. And I thought there was some personality in with the sports. They weren't just covering covering the games so that was one of the first tv interests but radio is kind of what hooked me and reeled me in in the beginning but those people weren't radio no radio allowed people to average listeners viewers to get into the conversation on tv at this time you couldn't really do that so i was just a kid who wanted to talk sports so i was supposed to be doing my homework i had a deep voice i'd call a radio station in miami this wkat and I would be Chris from Miami, and I would talk about what I wanted to talk about. They didn't have caller ID, so I'd hang up, call back, disguise my voice, be Duke from North Miami, and I would agree with my earlier call, so I got on the air more. I got to talk to the host and talk more sports. And from that, Barry, that I did that over a period of time, about a year or two, and they had fan night where they invited their, some of their regular callers down to the studio, and they had they invited both of my voices, so to speak. And uh, I didn't drive, I was 13 or 14. I had to tell my dad, and he said, well, first of all, you should've been doing your homework, but I'll drive you down there. And you gotta tell them the real, you know, tell them the truth, and I did. And from that, they were like, well, wow, you seem like you know a lot for a little kid about sports, you wanna work weekends here in high school. And that's how I got my first job and, and actually worked my way through college uh, from from that little bit of a break, which was kind of interesting. And and I remember going from algebra class at Chaminade High School in Hollywood, Florida, driving over to Fort Lauderdale Stadium and interviewing, taping, this was for radio, uh, Chuck Knoll, Tom Landry, Roger Staubach, Terry Bradshaw, and then you know, editing that for radio and sending it back up to New York, CBS Radio, and Pat Summerall, who would host kind of a, a network radio Super Bowl report. Uh, and, and that's kind of where it all started to begin. Those were the early years when I interviewed, you know, Muhammad Ali and Don Shula. At the time, I was just thinking, you know, I just want to get on, talk to people, radio, TV, whatever way I could, because I was, I was interested in sports and people, because sports was unpredictable. It was unrehearsed. It, 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 it seemed very authentic. I guess that's what drew me. And it was fun. For the, back then, it seemed more fun, less about contracts and lawsuits and things like that, and more about the games people played and the competition. But to know from such an early age that you were going to want to do this, was your father upset that you were working at the radio station or were you contributing to the household? <laughs> no, he, he ended up coming around. Uh, he was happy that I found something that I was interested in and my grades didn't suffer. Uh, and that, But he always wanted me to stay up on current events and be aware of what's going on in the world, that type of thing. And I filled in in local TV and news on that, but it just wasn't as much fun as sports and and um so uh yeah no my father ended up being very proud and got to go to some sporting events and that type of thing so and i think i ended up making him a bit of a a bit of a sports fan after all that now what age did you first go on the air 
broadcasting with your voice. I was, I think I just turned 16. We used to rerun, it was uh, talk radio, uh, Cat with a K, and they would they would run like Gene Shepard and some of these, Barry Farber, and some, some people, old-time radio fans would remember. They meant nothing to me at the time, but now I value when I look back at the history of radio. So we would run those programs either out of New York, and there were some local talk show hosts in Miami, but I would run the equipment behind the scenes, and then when there was a, on the late hours or overnight, there'd be a 90-second window to read news headlines, you know, the old rip and read kind of thing, Associated Press, UPI, and maybe the local weather for Miami Beach. So that's when the voice first went on. I was doing that, and I had a, I had a deep enough voice and, and was able to pull that off. And But I was a sports fan, and, and, and I would produce during the week for a sports show. And on a weekend sports show that I was working, it was the old story, a guy couldn't come in to do a, a three-hour uh, call-in show. He got sick last minute, and they're like, we don't have anybody. Chris, you think you can do it? We know you like sports because you used to call in. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. I said, just, you don't have to lie, but don't tell anybody how old you are because, you know, 16-year-old kid taking calls with a Miami Beach audience. Were you nervous? Uh, a little bit, but I think I, I was, I knew enough about the material and I had all kinds of books in public, you know, then we, no computer handy, but that's what you'd have today. So I would be able to research if somebody called and said, hey, Chris, do you remember when Joe DiMaggio, I was like, well, I knew the name, but I'd have to kind of leave through and and say, uh, well, certainly I'm aware of what, what he's accomplished. But I, I think I wasn't nervous because I was talking to people and, uh, and interacting. And that's kind of what, you know, the way I grew up in a big family and in that environment. And that's what attracted me to talk show host in the first place. Uh, so the communication business, uh, you know, made it made it kind of fun. And, and from that, you know, then the, the natural progression, hey, you're good enough, we can put you on during the week. And, and you know, I, uh, we came from a big family, didn't have a lot of money, so I had to pay my own way through college, the community college. And what I liked about Miami-Dade Community College back then was they had, I was in radio, but they had a very uh, hands-on TV program. When I say TV, there were actual cameras and there were some colleges didn't have that. So I could take courses there to try and get a degree, but I could actually get on camera, put a tape together, because that would be the next step to get from radio on television. And that's when I went to went to that that uh, community college, and it was very helpful in, the, in that regard. I remember putting a table. I sat there. We didn't have a background green. I tried to put on a coat and tie and comb the hair and, and kind of read sports and like I would if I was on TV, and it was very shabby. I wish I had saved that. But it was good enough to get me hired part-time at a local TV station in Miami, which is unheard of in those days. Usually you'd have to go to a small market in you know, Iowa or, or something like that and work your way up to get on the air. But because of the, the radio background and the familiarity with sports at that time, that, that got me in the, in the TV biz, so to speak. And now you're a kid and you're on the air. Are the women coming around more now? Yeah, yeah, they were. There was that, but I was, uh, I was driven. I, 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 you know, of course, you know, there were, you know, I had girlfriends and that type of thing. But even in high school, I was focused. Once I got the taste of radio media, uh, I, I, you know, that took priority. I sacrificed some prom dates and some big nights uh, with friends, you know, from from high school because I, I got to work Friday night. I got to do the overnight shifts. I'm sorry, I can't go out, you know, uh, but it was worth it to me. I didn't feel like I was sacrificing. That's why I'm always grateful to you because I cared about what I was doing. I was interested and I figured there'd, there'd be time to uh, to have fun. And then I, you know, what I traded there, I'd have benefits or I'd get invited to a, uh, you know, a Miami Dolphin fundraiser, a, a cocktail party or, a, you know, a charity tennis event for the Orange Bowl or those kinds of things that, that, uh, that were socially uh, you know, fun, but they were tied to the job. 
I think it was Royce Clayton that said on this podcast, study greatness, imitate greatness, become great. Were there broadcasters when you started that you would look at on television and say, okay, I like the way this guy has the cadence. I like his posture. I like how he does a catchphrase or all from the beginning. Was it just like, I don't want to know what anybody else does. I want to create my own style and my own voice that no one else can recreate. Well, I think when I was younger, I didn't think about my own style. I just thought about what I was doing. But you always study in it, whether you're studying or not, you're watching and interested in other people. And I, and I think what I did was a little bit of process of elimination of uh, what somebody did well was one thing I'd noticed, but what they didn't do well, I would say, well, that guy's a little, that guy comes off as he's not friendly. You know, I don't know that I, uh, maybe I'm wrong about that, but the way he's coming through on the screen or on the radio, he seems like he wouldn't be fun to be around or he'd be difficult, even though he's knowledgeable. So that's not the kind of guy I want to be, you know, so I, I was aware of those kinds of, of things. Uh, you know, yeah, there were, you wanted to speak well, you wanted to be one of the guys, you wanted to, you know, whether we thought about catchphrases or not, but uh, I, I think you wanted to be, I, I hate the term mainstream because you can't please everybody, but you, you, you wanted to be... Um, you wanted to be approachable, uh, I, I think. And that's one of the things I go back to Johnny Carson. I know it's a different a different time, a different audience. People now relate to Jimmy Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel, and they each bring different things in late night. But but Carson had that, yeah, the monologue people tuned in, but he, he could interview celebrities at the highest level uh, and make them feel comfortable, or he could interview the, the, the woman from Georgia, you know, grandmother who collected potato chips or whatever, and make her feel comfortable. And he knew when to accelerate with a comedian uh, or back off when a Don Rickles or a Dom DeLuise was was on the show. And if somebody knew, as he, so many new comics, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, he he would guide them, you know, so that they, they would shine. And, and that was the kind of the thing, I guess that's what I gravitated to uh, more than anything. And then the other thing I saw was, you know, it's it, it really is in information and entertainment you know those two factors were were always there and, and so you got to you got to study the sport and know the sport and give the right information but you can add a little bit more you know we're at a time where people expect a little bit more so let a little more of yourself out whether it's humor and you know I'm a big fan of, of comedians and comedy I even tr tried a little bit of that in college uh, which I certainly respect that that profession um, but I, I, I think if you can give them something a little bit more with, with being authentic that then, then then I think you're you're breaking through so that's kind of what stood out for me as I watched local sportscasters national broadcasters and and play-by-play -play announcers and tell me your first break onto the national scene from these radio and television jobs in Florida how did that come about how did you get that was that always your goal that you were visualizing and what were the steps you took to get on that main stage? Well, I, I was lucky in the sense that, and I worked hard and I was passionate about it. And I told you about some of the sacrifices I made through high school and radio to get the TV job in Miami. And I was at the, I was at WTVJ, the CBS station in Miami. It was one of the top sports stations in the country, even though I was just the weekend guy. But I was there at the age of 21. So in a sense, I kind of in my hometown had my dream job almost in 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 terms of wow you know this is and Miami is a is a big market uh, and yet I at the time we didn't have all of the other professional sports we had college football and and the NFL but there wasn't an NBA and a major league team in town and I thought that was important as a sports 
broadcaster to have those things to cover. So uh, I was looking around at a station from New Orleans called, and, and they didn't have the same kind of things, but it was a CBS affiliate. And, and they offered me a chance to do more than just weekends to do shows regarding football and to cover for a local station, WWL, to go out and cover things like the Kentucky Derby or the Masters. And, and for a local station, this was you know incredible that they would put this money up and have me go out and do reports or, uh, and find local angles. So that's I went there, took the, took the job. That's where I, I met, met, met my wife. She's not in the business, but I met her in, when I was working there. But I was doing a story, a couple of different stories, on the College World Series and on uh, the Saints coaching staff, which was made up of guys who never played in the NFL, but they were very successful as coaches. And ESPN saw those stories and and uh, inquired, was I interested? And ESPN was this new cable channel that I didn't know if it would make it or not, but as a sports fan, I was aware of it that was growing all sports. And I said, well, you know, I'd, ra- I'd, I'd like to host, is there? And I said, no, we don't have that, but we have a a West Coast reporter position. We're starting a bureau. We have somebody we in New York, and we're going to put somebody out in L.A. And I've always wanted to um, live in L.A. It's funny, and uh, even as a kid in Florida, I always liked the L.A. teams, the Lakers, the Dodgers, the Rams. I just was a fan of, of those. And so I said, all right, I'll, I'll take that job. So when I got to L.A. as the West Coast reporter, that was kind of the, the big break. And there were a series of stories as a reporter that that I think helped with within ESPN. One of which was I got this call and they said, "Hey, can you get to Dallas? There's this. This was their line. This crazy Arkansas oil guy is going to buy the Cowboys, and he's going to fire Tom Landry and change everything." And I flew in there, and that was the beginning of the Jerry Jones era as the Dallas Cowboys owner. And I got to, I went there, and I ended up spending a week there covering, getting to know Jerry, the hiring of Jimmy Johnson, the exit of the great Tom Landry, then later the drafting of Troy Aikman as, as the number one overall pick, and then the Super Bowls. So that was kind of a, a breakthrough moment uh, for me within the company. And then later they they offered me the chance to come back and, and anchor Sports Center before I went back to L.A. to do up close. But you just took the job in New Orleans. How do you extricate yourself from a job that they hired you for to go take this job? I had honored. I had signed uh, two different contracts in New Orleans. I kind of sped through that. It was a fun time there. But I was there for about almost five years. But, yeah, I had had fulfilled the contract, and my contract was up, and ESPN timed that correctly. And I got to tell you, it was emotional leaving because that – that station was a powerhouse station, but they treated me like a family member in the time I was there. And, and you know, when you go into the boss who, who thinks you're going to be there forever, I mean, that station had people that were lifers that are still there, that were there 10 years before I got there, that are still on the air. I mean, people, you dream about those jobs in the TV business that you can be on and be appreciated and stay there. And, and it was a, a tough call, but it was the young, it was the young me who was like, hey, there's this chance to go do this. And, uh, and I'm, I'm glad that I did because I really enjoyed, you know, my time at ESPN. I call them the golden years. Those were the, those were the really growth years in the nineties. Cause we added the NFL, we got major league baseball. We weren't just, you know, a tractor pull and billiard games and sports center, you know, and I worked with some really nice people that, uh, that were very talented people that helped change sports television. What was the first thing you did where you realized, or somebody said something to you that you respected the person you respected so much and they said something to you like chris that thing you did that was incredible like the time when you knew in your mind holy shit, i'm onto something 
I really am doing something special here. That's uh, there's a Muhammad Ali said you're not as dumb as you look. When I asked him a question as a teenager, I had long hair, kind of like you, Barry. I kind of looked like you. <laughs> I was a little unkempt. I'm sorry I, to hear that. You no, know, I'm kidding. But uh, that no, but I, you know, well, Larry King, believe it or not, who was on South Florida radio and he was on held his own radio stations back then. Uh, he had heard me on the radio and saw me in Miami, and he said, "I don't remember the specific." moment but like hey kid you you know you, you sound pretty good or I, i've heard you you're doing okay it was just that kind of a i was like well larry king he's you know established this is a guy who's that was more in the radio business than than tv did you start wearing so, suspenders after so, that? no no <laughs> i uh, i've only had one marriage so far too which is part of the, <laughs> i'll have to ask larry about that but i uh, i i don't know tv wise it didn't really uh, it was more people that were just in, you know, they were general managers or, or news directors who were encouraging. And I think what they appreciated was, I mentioned versatility, I think they appreciated the hustle and the, the, the willingness, the eagerness to, to work and to get the job done and to, to do it right. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and each time you do that, I think you get a little better at it. You become more efficient with your, with your time. And and uh, yeah, so if you get the opportunity, seize it was kind of was kind of the approach. But I I guess getting to ESPN on a national platform, uh, hosting you know a Sports Center. Uh, I mean, the Emmy was one thing as a reporter, but that's you know you're out in the field, you're still you're grinding. Uh, but when I got to go back and host Sports Center, and and my father could watch wherever he was in the country, or my brothers and sisters who had moved in different cities, and that they could see me and say, hey, you know, we're not really these big sports fans, but it was nice we saw that what you said the other day about Michael Jordan or whatever. I, I think that that was kind of rewarding. That oh, that's that's kind of neat. I mean, that's that's different than somebody in the industry saying you made it because they're family, they're rooting for you. But the fact that I was visible to them, uh, that meant something to me. And you've been a part of so many great sporting events. Are there some times where the event is so unbelievable what's happening? You were there at the first game when the Giants came back and beat the Patriots. Who were perfect without a loss. That's right. Printed up their 19-0 t-shirts. You're on the field. Your job in that Super Bowl at the end of the telecast is to find the guy who's the most valuable player on that field and interview him with all the craziness running around. You got a field producer trying to help you get him. But in the end, you're not relying on that guy. You are running. You're trying to find the person. So now there's like a minute left and Tom Brady has won the game for the Patriots then there's the throw to David Tyree that he catches on his helmet, which, by the way, talking about a broadcaster, and I hope Joe Buck doesn't get mad at me for saying this, it's unbelievable to me that a guy as professional and unbelievable and as great as him could call one of the greatest plays in history like he was walking down the street whistling. What was amazing to, to me about that was, well, because it, it wasn't the touchdown. I thought time would still run out. You know, I, I still didn't think the Giants would, would be able to score, but I, I still thought Eli Manning was was in the grasp on that on that play. And I think it was Mike Carey, who later I talked to him, the referee, the, um, the official, 
I, he said, I was ready to throw the, you know, you know, ready to not throw the flag, but blow the whistle that, that's down. You know, he's in the grasp. It was that close, you know, and I thought it I thought it should have been. But I think in defense of, of Joe at that moment, uh, you know, you think, well, it's still that's a great catch and that's miraculous. But they still got to score a touchdown to win and, and time's running out. Um, but but anyway, it was one of those moments. And yes, on that sideline, I'm thinking if I don't get Brady, it's funny. Randy Moss, who I had talked to before, he caught the touchdown pass from Brady that put the Patriots ahead. And over on the sideline, I saw him, and you're not supposed to be talking to players, but I signaled to him, hey, when this is so, you know, I'm going to I'm talk because he's going to win the Super Bowl for him, his first time, whatever. It's a big deal. If, if, if Brady, they might have to interview him on the stand and the, setting up the stage if he gets the MVP trophy. So, so Randy might be the first guy that I get to because they want you to get the guy right away, you know, if you can in that moment. And then the tide turns, yes, and then that happened. Then they score the touchdown. I think there was less than 10 seconds left yeah. or less than 20 seconds left, and now they're in your ear, get over to the New York sidelines, and how do you get over there and run with the camera and get to where you're supposed to be? Well, in that case, we had uh, Pam Oliver was on the other side, and I had, so I was just on the Patriots, but then what they told me was, Pam will handle the, the, the Giants. The you got to go talk to the losing coach. Oh. And you know Bill Belichick, even when he wins, is. And so that's the story that a lot of people don't bear. And I went to that locker room. He didn't, you know, uh, he didn't want to do it. And it was, and the, he's required by the league to, to do that kind of, you know. And they were like, I said, well, look, if he doesn't want to, I'll go talk to Randy Moss. And, you know, Randy, he might say something. So eventually Bill came out, Bill Belichick, and I, I felt in a way, and I shouldn't, you know, but I felt like he was the guy. And I don't, he, he came off to viewers as rude to me because I was asking and we had so many great moments. With, but I don't think he was being rude on purpose. I think he was like the guy, the kid in Little League who wins all the time and then finally has to lose, you know, who loses his first game. He almost doesn't know what to say. He's stunned, you know, because that season was perfect. That was history on the, on the doorstep. And so that was one of those turn of events that, that was different and, and so different from this last Super Bowl, the, the only overtime we had where I had to run and get to Brady after it looked like the Falcons were, were – and I thought, oh, here's a repeat. I'm going to have to go talk to Bill Belichick again. <laughs> but Brady pulled it off. But let me real quick, and I don't know if you were going to ask about this because this is one of those in the moments that you talk about. I did have either sideline, Oklahoma, Boise State, the Fiesta Bowl, Fox doing the college broadcast. And this is where it was back and forth. It goes to overtime. Oklahoma's the heavy favorite. Boise State wins. So I'm, I'm each 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 time somebody is scoring, the producer, get on Oklahoma. <laughs> now go to Boise State. So I'm bouncing back and forth. And I don't even know which sideline I'm on at this point. I'm trying to watch the game. So it ends. Boise State wins on a crazy play. Running back Ian Johnson scores. So they, we interview the quarterback, and then they say, they're setting up the stage. Can you find one more interview? We're live. And I run over to the running back. I said, hey, do you have a chance to, to talk to me? Was talk I said, we're going to be live on. He goes, live on national TV. I said, yeah. I said, uh, you know, it's a great win. He goes, yeah, uh, I just want to make a proposal. And I thought he was going to propose a college football playoff proposal. That's just, you know, my mind. Now, I knew from covering the team during the week he was dating a cheerleader, but I, that was not on my mind at the moment. So I'm asking the question. We're live on TV. And then I see the girlfriend come come running over, and, and I see him kind of start to knee, you know, and, and, and they're wrapping me. The producer said, we got to go. Let's wrap it. The producer doesn't know that he mentioned the proposal. He still hasn't talked about the college football playoff. So now I'm starting to put this all together in my head while they're wrapping me. And so I 
kind of people criticize me for stepping on his big moment. But otherwise, he had kind of forgot, I guess, in the moment. So I said, hey, did, was there, were you going to propose or, or what or something like that? And he goes, oh, yes, yes. And they got on one knee and the girlfriend came over and the camera. And then I just held the mic and stepped back and he proposed to her. And she said, yes, he, he left the ring at the hotel. They got married. <laughs> and he later thanked me because he said I did kind of freeze. But I wanted to do that moment on, on national uh, uh, TV. Uh, but it was at the time, uh, Bruce you know, was like, why are you going long? you got to wrap this up. So that was one of those crazy moments that you, uh, you can never prepare for. I've always had so much respect for you, not only professionally, but personally. And I wanted to share something with you that I don't think I've shared with anybody, but you're the only person that I can share it with because it involves you, but it's emotional for me. You obviously went through a horrible tragedy and lost your son. Yeah, at age 19. In essentially Malibu. And I remember putting my son to bed that week. And I naturally didn't share anything with them. They were seven and eight. But I'm putting my son to bed and he leans over to me and he looks at me before he closes his eyes and he says, Daddy, I just want you to know that if I die tonight and I don't wake up tomorrow, I had an amazing life. And that happened right around the time that you were going through what you were going through. And I thought to myself how I would figure out a way to go on professionally and try to get in front of cameras and entertain people or do what I do when I have taken that kind of blow, even if I knew. And what the, my son said to me was the greatest gift he could yeah. ever say to yeah. me because that's what you want to know. You want to know that the person's up there looking down saying, hey, listen, daddy had a great life. Yeah. Everything's wow. okay. What a, what a mind at age eight for him to have the awareness to say that because I, I think it's important to get your, your bonded, uh, in this life and beyond. And my son, Christopher met you when you were with Frank Caliendo and he liked, uh, actually he did an impression of you later, which was uh, very <laughs> funny watching Caliendo do impressions of you. Uh, and, and it's the worst thing that anybody can experience. And, you know, you never think it's going to happen. And then when it does, you, you're, you're stunned, you're angry, uh, you're grateful for the support, uh, and you're not, you're not sure uh, that, you know, you're going to get through it. You know, you're just not. Uh, uh, my wife and I, you, you have moments, we have a son, young, Christopher's younger brother, who, you know, also had some doubts. Um, but you're grateful for the time you had and that, you know, you hope your child thinks of you as as your son mentioned to you uh but it does change your world because you're never you know you're ne you know you're never just as happy as you could have been you know and you're always there's always a layer of of sadness beneath whatever you do in, in your life so you try to make the the best of it and you don't think you think about yourself a little less you got to think about you know my son my wife the people i work with who who are there and have been there and and you go forward and you hope that you you know you all reunite again uh, I, I think but it is important while you have the people around you to say those kinds of words whether you're eight years old or 80 years old 
because you just really don't know. That day was like just another day. I remember seeing him going off to lunch uh, when it's going to be the last, you know, the last time. And I think we all realize that, but I, I don't think we think about it until tragic moments like that either hit somebody close to us or, or hit us directly. But I think one of the things that I think probably blew you away more than anything else was the people, Rick Hendrick. Yeah. I mean, the, Bud Selig, the then commissioner of baseball, Peyton Manning, handwritten note, uh, personally sent to the house. Uh, uh, Larry Fitzgerald was on vacation. I, I think he was in Africa, heard about it, made a call personally to to connect Fox, Eric Shanks, the president of uh, Fox, you know, whatever, whatever you need, you know, there for you. Um, and, and at the time, a lot of it's a blur. Um, and, and then once you catch your breath, you, you know, you say, okay, this is why we have to keep going. And you hope to help other people. Recently, Alberto Riveron, who is one of the top officials in the NFL office, lost his teenage son to a, a drug overdose and, and reached out, just like Rick Hendrick, who lost his son with Hendrick Motorsports and NASCAR at earlier in a, in a, in a plane crash. And, and you, you, you got to be alert and aware when these things happen for people, you have to reach out because it matters to hear from somebody who's been through it, not that anybody can tell you what you're going to feel, but they can at least tell you and what they went through, they're years ahead of your pain and, and suffering, and uh, and it helps. But yeah, and there's there's others on that list. Bill Murray personally driving out to the house. The Murray brothers, his family showing up at the funeral. His three or four brothers, I, I can't even remember the, you know, uh, and him talking to my son about when he lost his dad at a young age to help him handle the loss of somebody in your family. Um, Adam Sandler, Jimmy Kimmel, people behind the scenes that were, you know, were there for the, uh, um, uh, uh, what's it, from the Mighty Mighty Boston's, Dickie Barrett, right? It was another one who, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to leave anybody out. But yes, I mean, it's been, well, I think, five years. And sometimes it feels like yesterday, and then sometimes it feels like it's been, you know, 50 years. But you don't forget the people that, that reached out and were there. And so... In the rarest of rares, your employers say, Chris, whatever works for you works for us. Take us through the first time you decide I'm going back to work and what assignment was that? Yeah, well, there, you know, you spend weeks and, and we're all different. But I, I talked to my wife and my son about, you know, you can only sit around so long and be sad before, you know, you, you want to be able to function. And so you want to make sure the three of us, you know, and I have, I have my brothers and sisters and they were all there and relatives from around the country. But once everybody goes back to their lives, you have to sort out your life. And I talked to them because I like my job so much. And because, my, you know, Christopher had been on some trips with me, he, you know, meeting Troy Aikman and guys like that. Then Troy Aikman was another one. Private jet was there. Need anything. Uh, right. You know, right hand man support. So, you, you know, you say, OK, if it's OK with you. I want to try to go back at it, but it's hard to be. Remember Billy Crystal saying, was somebody I interviewed early years ago, and I'm a big fan of him, uh, when his mother died, it was, it was hard to be funny after that, you know, whether it was writing it and performing on stage. And, and I felt that way, that it was just hard to, to get out there and be authoritative and care about sports when, you know, you, you lost your son. But I thought it was healthy for me to do it so that I could show my youngest son and why, you know, we, we've got to go forward here. And, and once they were supportive, 
uh, NASCAR, Mike Helton, president of NASCAR, Brian France, they said, hey, we, we have a private jet for you and your family if they want to come with you, you know, and if, and if you feel uncomfortable when you're there, they can take you back home, you know, it's, you let us know. And so they, they thought it'd be better to stay home. I went over, uh, Bill Richards from Fox came with me. Great so, producer, worked yeah, with Frank Kelly. Did NASCAR pre-race and, and the Fox NFL pre-race now, and he, he did that back then. And he was kind of just there, you know, uh, to kind of guide me, make sure I was okay, because he, he's a friend of the family. And, uh, you know, and then Daryl Waltrip and the NASCAR crew, they were all very understanding. You know, they don't know what to say. They don't want to They don't want to say the wrong thing, but they also want to be sensitive to, we've got a job to do. And if I'm there, you know, it's time for me to do the job. That's, that's I, I you know, it, we got to all go forward. And that was the hardest thing I've ever done in broadcasting. I mean, I've interviewed winners and losers and angry coaches and managers, and I've had players throw things at me when they didn't want to talk. And uh, uh, been in earthquakes and Olympic bombings, but just this, this for this to go on the air, and 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 I didn't want to make it all about me, but it was because the the outpouring of NASCAR fans and just sports fans in general, people I never heard from, I didn't, I never knew, were sending personal letters and cards and donations to the animal rescuer. My son uh, used to help uh, in Malibu with uh, walk dogs and and help dogs find homes who were who were homeless. Uh, so I, but I just wanted to get through the first words and I had to address that and thank people. And boy, I'll tell you, I, I, that was the toughest thing I've ever done in broadcasting. I knew I had Daryl Waltrip and, and the broadcast crew beside me, Jeff Ammon, to help me get through it. But as the host of that show, and we're on to do a broadcast for a race, you know, I'm, I'm steering it. So if I'm not, if I'm off, they're off. So I was able to get through it. I don't remember the words I said. It'd be probably too difficult to even talk about now or to bring up those words, but I got through it. They were supportive. And then it was just, I was kind of in a, in a, uh, I don't know, a haze the rest of the day, just trying to focus on, on the job and that the job actually helped David Hill from Fox, Eric Shanks, uh, recommended, you know, when you're right, the job will help you get back to whatever you need to get back to in your life with, with your family. And, and it did, it did, uh, without, I didn't want the job to suffer either. And you still have those moments where you want to be alone to deal with things. Uh, and then other moments where you're almost afraid to be alone. And sometimes when you work in this business, you have crews for football or baseball or NASCAR, and, and you want to make sure that other people are not offended by your, uh, by your feelings at that time. It has nothing to do with them. It has to do more with what, what you're going through. Amazing. Which Amazing. is difficult to talk about, but I, you know, because you, you knew my son or at least met him, I, I, I'm glad you brought it up. And, and amazing that your son at that age would be so aware. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name or an event, and I just want you to tell me what comes to mind. Okay. Muhammad Ali. Uh, the greatest, uh, very entertaining. 
uh, and, and a special human being, well beyond sports, best boxer I ever, ever saw. Tiger Woods. Troubled, uh, outstanding golfer, uh, sad life from what I observed. Uh, wish it had worked out better for him. Tom Brady. Uh, amazing, has it all, so it appears, and, uh, and, and not done yet. By the way, be a, be a very good politician, too. I think, I think he would be. Michael Jordan. Uh, greatest basketball player ever who also knew how to handle better than anyone uh, his privacy, his world, his image, and market himself without having to say a whole lot. <laughs> the 2004 Boston Red Sox. Ooh. Uh, the you know, the self-proclaimed idiots, right? You know, cowboy up, all these phrases that never forget uh, when they were down to the Yankees, you know, 03, and I was in that dugout. I, Terry Francona got mad at me the next night because I said, oh, it felt like a like we were in a morgue, you know. He said, no, our guys were okay. Don't, you know, you shouldn't have made it. We, we didn't give up, and he was right. He was right. Uh, just fun to be a part of. Didn't understand, as great a baseball fan as I was, never lived in Boston, didn't understand the the years and the, the emotional connection uh, to Red Sox fans and, and what that meant. And it, and it was the most unlikeliest of, of outcomes, but a, a very unique experience that I'll carry with me. Always inspiring in that you never give up no matter what the circumstances or the years that you've had going against you. John Wooden. Wow, if, uh, if Mother Teresa were a coach, uh, that's, that's who... A guy, if Abraham Lincoln were around today, or when he was around, that's the kind of guy. He used to quote Lincoln, and some of his quotes uh, reminded me of Lincoln. He seems it told me that he took him from Lincoln. He, I, I love the one about there's there's no uh, better conscience. Let's see, it's no softer pillow than a clear conscience. That one always stuck with me. Make every day your masterpiece was another thing that John Wooden's, you know, getting through. And when I asked him at age 99 if he feared death, he had two other situations he told me about in his life where he almost passed away. Here's a guy 99 years old. His wife had died year, many years earlier, and they, he was troubled by that. He would still put out her clothes sometimes in, in his apartment as if he was going to meet up with her, which was a very touching thing. But when I asked him if he feared death, he said, no, because, you know, I think the next life is going to be better than this one, and this one hasn't been all that bad. Kind of stuck with me. It's a good, it's a good approach. Awesome. Jeff Gordon. Ooh, a breakthrough NASCAR driver uh, did so much for auto racing because he wasn't just back road south. He was uh, Main Street, Wall Street, uh, for a kid from California with the driving skills of the best of them. And uh, I, I will add now, a great guy to work with. Uh, he really, for a guy to have been able to host SNL and, and go on with, uh, at the time, you know, uh, Regis and, and Kelly or that show and co-host, fill and host on that, and, and then transition into the business while winning championships and, and carrying a sport and advertisers forward uh, and marrying a model. Uh, a good guy. <laughs> Instant replay. Absolutely necessary. I, I, I know, you know, there are imperfections in a lot of these things, but I remember watching games, and we all did, I'm sure, in a generation where, wow, we saw that. The, how could the referee or the official miss that? Finally, baseball has gravitated to it. They're still trying to iron it out, but it's absolutely necessary for uh, the NFL and for sporting events. It's how we implement it and how we make it work. There'll always be 
some mistakes in there and, and human error, but it's taking us forward. And thank God we have it at home on our TV because, you know, the, the, the fact that we can re, rewind if you have TiVo or stop and pause things. It's sad when I travel and go to a hotel and I, I don't have that. And I find myself hitting the thing like I want to stop it and go back. The replay is important. The greatest baseball player of 2017 and the greatest baseball player of all time. Well, Mike Trout, when he's healthy, is the man for a lot of reasons. And there's some others close. All time, oh, I can go through the ones that I saw personally because I didn't, obviously, <laughs> don't go back to, to Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron, some of, some of the greats, Reggie Jackson in his prime. Reggie Jackson was called Mr. October because he was a clutch person when the money was on the line. He always did well. He's a first ballot Hall of Fame player. But a little statistic for everybody. He struck out over 2,500 yep. times, which for those of you who don't know anything about baseball would mean that he could play five straight seasons and strike out every single at bat, and he still wouldn't strike out as many times as he struck out, and he was a first ballot Hall of Famer. So if you're experiencing things and you're failing, believe me, you can still get to the top. Yes, and that he was that good that he would still get the chance at that because that he would get that home run, you know. And when he delivered in the clutch, and at one time he, in terms of the what I remember seeing that complete guy. Now Willie Mays probably historically would come to mind as the most because I'm thinking all the way you could steal bases, you could make plays defensively, catching the ball with an arm, throwing people out, hitting for average, hitting for power. Uh, but I was going from my personal view that certainly Reggie would would be up there, uh, be, and for that for the reason you talked about, and for being clutch. There are some guys that have great numbers, and unfortunately, Mike Trout hasn't been in a World Series, and I hope he has a few before his career is over, uh, for for those reasons, because you want guys that that can do it in the moment. Um, but yeah, that's that's a tough one because if you can go back to the Babe Ruth and the Hank Aaron's, as I mentioned, Willie Mays certainly is one that would would come to mind. Obviously, the NFL passed baseball as the America's pastime. Yeah. But why is it that doesn't matter if it's a young kid or a guy who's 90, everybody knows baseball history, stats, home runs, who did this? Yeah, well, because I, I really, for me, going back, baseball cards, there were football cards and basketball and hockey, but they didn't have, they just weren't as common as the, the baseball card. This is before you could call up stats on your iPad or your or your uh, your iPhone or a computer or whatever, but you would read those stats about hometowns. And, you know, Bill Russell of the shortstop of the Dodgers from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. I only remember that because I had it on his baseball card. I mean, when I met him, I said that, and he was amazed that I remember. But they had the stats in there, and and we set numbers, 600 home runs, 700. Yeah, and yeah, I know there's some things that are tainted now. You know, 3,000 hits, you know, the, the strikeouts that, that a guy like Nolan Ryan throwing no hitters because records and and uh, and, and statistics, that's what pushes pushes baseball. And now we're into a generation that maybe it's too much of, of analytics uh, where it gets into people's head. I don't need war to tell me a guy's a great player. You know, I, I, 
I don't need you know, wins above replacement. You know, I don't need the run differential to tell me how great the this this Cubs team is because I can see they've got a 10-game lead in the division going back to last year. Uh, but that's why I think that's why baseball and, and obviously football came around. Television, I think, had a reason of, and the action and the pace. Uh, that's what maybe in a generation helped it surpass baseball. It doesn't mean that baseball is any less of a sport than football. I'm never going to rank one over the other, whether it's soccer or NASCAR or, or tennis or, or golf. But but you, you have to go with the trend. Now, there was a time when the NBA, the finals, were on the tape delay when, you know, Magic Johnson and the Lakers took on the 76ers. Can you imagine that? Um, so there are trends. But, uh, but yes, uh, the numbers in baseball will always be important. You were able to rattle those stats off with Reggie Jackson without, without looking at your notes. Your least favorite person that you've ever interviewed that's made your life difficult and you would not want to interview again and your favorite person to interview that you wish you could interview every day. Wow. Well, the least favorite, and I, would, I wouldn't say that I wouldn't want to interview him again because he's a fascinating guy, but Don King, the great promoter who I happened to run into recently in South Florida somewhere, he, I was doing an up-close interview with him, and I, I, I went back historically where he, he had some criminal history, and he kind of got off the hook. He for, killed somebody. Yes, kicking, yeah, you know, you know, numbers running, kicking a guy to death, and and that was one thing. But the sentencing, he got he, there was sentencing, and from what I remember, he, a judge came in on a Saturday, and and all of a sudden, you know, let him off the hook, and he walked free. And so it, it, that was a little muddy, and I I wasn't accusing or trying to try. I was just trying to find out more about what happened because that was kind of shady in the research there, and he just went off on me and and said it was all lies and called me name almost I'm surprised he didn't walk off the show but he didn't do it to his credit and after that people thought I you know I was a little bit too tough on him I it was just an interesting time to be able to talk it was that kind of a format so I would like to interview him again but that was one of those <clears throat> difficult interviews the OJ Simpson interview was difficult because we were supposed to be 30 minutes and ended up going nearly an hour. It was live. It was not about sports, obviously, because I couldn't ask him about his playing career. You were the first one so, to interview him after. Yeah, the first live interview. And he told me Barbara Walters was going to do it, but she had to tape it. And he wouldn't do it if it was on tape because he didn't want people editing his answers. So he said, I'll go on with you if it's live. And you can ask me anything you want, but except don't ask about my children. And I thought that was that was fair game. But through that interview, he, he at the very end, he was like, great talking sports with it. He was a little sarcastic, but I, I said, if I'm going to have you on based on what just happened, I, I can't, you know, I don't want to talk about your playing career. People, I said, we got to talk about what happened. And he said, I think he thought it was going to repair his image. And I think if you watch the interview, you can, uh, you can judge for yourself. Uh, but my favorite interview, I, you know, I've always loved owners of teams, uh, uh, Jerry Jones, uh, the late George Steinbrenner. Uh, they're fascinating. But, but I got to say, Charles Barkley uh, became a, a good friend. He's another one, reached out, had, had a tragedy in his family. But when I lost my son, um, uh, he, he's just always, and he's, and I, I interviewed him and, uh, long before he became, when he was playing, right before he became an announcer in this kind of mouthpiece. And I know sometimes he says things that are outlandish, but he's genuine. His heart's in the right place. He, he, um, you know, uh, even when we disagree on things politically that we discuss, or uh, you know, we, we still have the same goal in terms of caring about people and, and, and being honest. So he's one of my favorites that I could talk to him every day and not run out of things to uh, to talk to him about. Your proudest moment in show business? Well, <laughs> show business, I think of it as the sports broadcasting. 
Uh, well, I, you know, I don't know, Barry. You rattled off the list. I, 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 I never thought of it as about, you know, my moment as much as, you know, even with the Emmy, that was more about the moment of the player getting there. He, Tim Burke, by the way, he ended up pitching in the All-Star game, getting on a late plane to Guatemala in the jungle, meeting his wife. And we were there when he first saw the child, the baby he was adopting. That moment was was priceless as before I was married and had had children. Um, but I don't I don't know. I mean the Red Sox moment, the, the you know the, the great Super Bowl that the Patriots came back, first overtime Super Bowl win. I, I mean a guy proposing who's still happily married after a great college football game, interviewing. I, I met so many neat people doing up close and getting to know them and, and interview them uh, and find out about them. So I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of, I'll, I'll cop out and say the proudest moments yet to come. There's still something else around the corner. I, you know, you never know. Uh, and just like this last year, I didn't know that Super Bowl was going to turn out like it was. I was glad to be there and cover it. I'm thinking the Patriots are going to be blown out. All of a sudden, it's the greatest comeback in the history of the game. And I'm talking to Brady when his mom is battling an illness and, you know, and, and he's you know, got to got to lead the team. So, um, but yeah, th- those are they're they're all important. I really do. I, my people tease me because at work, my cliche line is every night's the Super Bowl. I say that whether I'm I'm doing a, you know, a, a, a football game, a NASCAR race. That's that's kind of my approach because it's that much fun, and because we really don't know how it's gonna gonna turn out. So, um, I, I hope they're all proud moments. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Well, I, you know, it was funny. I have a, a, a scar on on my forehead growing up in Florida. And I'm not sure it was something that I had when I was a kid and, and the sun never cleared. And I, I remember a college professor when I wanted to get into TV telling me, you're never going to get on TV with that mark on your head. So I was like, well, uh, okay, there's a th- you know thing called makeup. I'm going to show him. And, and that has always pushed me. And then when I got a job at one of the stations, the, the news director, they had hired me and he said, hey, you ever think about having that scar removed and we can surgically? And I said, well, it might leave a surgical star uh, scar, so uh, I, you know, I'd rather not. So they were they backed off, and that, that kind of fueled me. Like, come on, I mean, I, I already got the job, um, so that's a that's a way of of kind of motivating a, a little bit, um, and it's always been there. I, I, and I guess you know, I, there's no disappointment. I I still one of my favorite things to do, and I love the variety. But interviewing, and that's why I wanted to do this with you. And you've always asked, just even in conversation when we've chatted. Over the years, your questions were thoughtful and, and, and interesting. Uh, so I, I, I like interviewing people, and I think uh, uh, today it's unfortunate. I love doing the Up Close. Roy Firestone started that show. It was way ahead of its time. Uh, I, I know today a lot of people, when they've talked to me about doing a show, they want me to be edgy or argumentative, and, you know, that's not that's not who I am, but I would still like to do, you know, Charlie Rose still does an interesting show. You know, you may not care about the author who he has on, but you're going to check it out. That would be nice to do another show like that at some point in some form, uh, that, that, uh, you know, where, where people would be, would want to come on and talk and where people would want to listen. Um, so I would say the fact that I'm not doing something like that along with the other things is a disappointment, but hopefully I'll get back to that. Awesome. Last question. What advice do you have for the young kid growing up in a small town (laughs) with a dollar and a dream and wants to get to the next level and has to go to community college to get to the place and have the kind of career that you've had? Well, you hit the key word dream and it's and it's okay to dream, but you got to you got to back it up. Uh, I I told my old son and my own son, and this applies 
in anything, and he's going into a different field. Uh, but, you know, uh, work hard, uh, show up on time, get along with people, do a little more than the job requires. Those were some of the basic things that I kind of applied. And the natural thing is if you care about what you're doing, if you're passionate, you, you don't feel like you're working. You're, you're always wanting to do it. When they call, you're ready. And when you're not, you're thinking about how can I do it better? How can I, how can I accomplish this? And uh, there are a lot of ways now, and, and we have, uh, I've seen it, it's some uh, terrific young talent, whether they come through social media, uh, you know, YouTube, internet, you know, that get on a regional TV from a local station. There are a lot of different ways, even as I showed back in my time, to get through so that people can see and hear you uh, about what you have to say and, and what you want to do. Uh, so that, and, and try to be as professional as you can be, especially based on, on how sensitive things are today about what you say and how you say it. You can still be opinionated and outrageous uh, without, without crossing uh, the boundary. Chris Myers. I feel like I won the Super Bowl. <laughs> well, I was just saying, you, we covered some things that I never thought uh, that I'd be talking to you about, but I'm glad we did. It was, a, it was an interesting conversation, so I'm, I'm glad that uh, we had the time to do this. And uh, thank you for very much for the nice words. I really didn't know that you, you thought that highly of me, that you could have given me my own show. About <laughs> <laughs> but thanks again, man. I really appreciate uh, Thank you. It. No, I enjoyed it. I really did. It was good stuff. All right. As always, this is Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. If you like the show... Tell all your friends, and if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. <laughs> okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, will Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on MTAB303, March 28th, 2016. Title, Why Am I Paying for School? Question mark, exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point. Five stars. It reads, I am currently a college student with hopes of one day establishing a career in entertainment. I get more invaluable information about what I want to do from this podcast alone than I have gotten in my three years of college education. The first-hand accounts from greatness itself is unparalleled, and there is nothing like it on iTunes. By far the most entertaining and insightful podcast I know of. Five out of five stars, exclamation point. Well, MTAB303, I am humbled and flattered, and I am so, so grateful for that review. Incredible. I'm speechless. Thank you, and congratulations. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. 
as always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.